all come in and grab your seats. We're going to be starting in Philippians here shortly. Philippians chapter 1. Grab your seats. Nathan asked me to preach. Well, actually, he asked like 20 other people, and everybody else told him no, so he asked me to preach, and so I, so I was obliged. Um, but I did feel like he was going through Philippians at a breakneck breakneck speed seven verses last week so this week i'm going to slow it down i'm going to cover one verse which is the speed we ought to be going oh my screen they can do what you're doing that's great but we will cover one verse today uh, would you please stand for the reading of god's word we'll read a few verses but we'll focus in on verse 27 so philippians chapter 1 verse 7 27 only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of christ so that whether i Come and see you, or am absent. I may hear of, of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, and with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Let's pray again. God, thank you for your word. That we can know what it is to follow you. We aren't trying to make it up or strive after wind or other doctrines that are false, Lord. That you have delivered your word through your prophets, your apostles, and your son. And we would know exactly what it is that you want from us and how it is that we can be restored to you. Inspired word alone gives us instruction for life and godliness. God, I ask for myself that you would strengthen me, that you would uh, help me to persevere, endure, that I would not be fearful of man or their opinion, but Lord, that I would just preach your word faithfully and that what I say, Lord, would be true of your word and that the power that comes from your word would change the hearts of those who want to hear desire more wholeheartedly to follow you as your word reveals your truth. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you. This morning I have three points in my sermon. I'll give them to you now and then give them to you again as we go through it. The first point is to live a life worthy of your citizenship. The second, to be unified in the spirit of God. And the third, to strive together for the spread of the gospel. So we'll look at verse 27 for these three points. It says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So the first point, live a life worthy of your citizenship. And you might ask, well, where is that at? Hold on a second. Start with the first word of the first verse. It says only. And what Paul's doing here is saying, hold on a second. I know that life is busy. I know that there's a lot of things that I've said and there's a lot of things I'm going to say. He says, I, I desire to come to you. I wholeheartedly believe with full confidence that I will. But whether I come or whether I don't come, only this. Listen to this one thing, he says. Just if I could summarize everything for you, just give you one thing to do. Do this one thing. Only do this thing and it'll be okay. There's much more to say than that, but focus, he says, only this thing. 
My ESV says, let your manner of life. Now, that's a fine translation, uh, but it misses one aspect of the word in Greek, and that, that part of it is the, the citizenship part of the word. It is, it's a unique word that Paul has used that describes or has an essence of it to a citizenship. The word literally contains the word for city in it. And so it's, you are to live at a, as a citizen of something. That's what the word describes. And, and I think Paul is using this word very intentionally because he's writing to the city in, of, of Philippi. When he wrote to the Ephesian church, if you were to look back quickly at uh, Ephesians 4.4, 4, he says, uh, you, were to, you were urged to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. So he says, walk in Ephesians, he says, walk in a manner. It's a similar idea, walk in a, in a worthy way. But here he uses a different word that has the, the essence of citizenship to it. And so he's trying to evoke something in the Philippian church about their citizenship. Now, now Philippi was a Roman city, which meant that the citizens of that city were citizens of Rome. And with that came a significant privilege and obligation. Now, most of the church probably would have been citizens of Philippi and thus citizens of Rome, but maybe perhaps some of the Jews were not. And so we have in this church then people who are privileged with Roman citizenship and those who are not privileged with Roman citizenship. But either way, citizenship was a big deal to this church. Roman citizenship was a big deal. You were either in or out, privileged or excluded. But the distinction was significant. You remember when Paul uh, appeals to Caesar, he does it on the basis of his citizenship. And so with his Roman citizenship came privileges. Citizens could vote, they could own land, all those sorts of things. They also had obligations like taxes and civic duty and those, those sorts of things. We can relate. American citizenship is very similar, right? Uh, we have certain obligations as an American citizen. We have to pay taxes. We do jury duty. We've got to follow the laws of the land, etc. But there's privileges that come as well. We get to vote. We have the freedom of religion and speech. We get the protection of the U.S. military. That is an extraordinary privilege. You think of those... Uh, hostages in the Middle East that uh, were released not that long ago. There was a couple of them released, and the timing of it, I think, is peculiar, and while Hamas would never admit this, but as those aircraft carriers came closer and closer to the bank, suddenly the decision to say, hey, you know what, we're going to release a couple of these U.S. hostages. The American military has not seen anything quite like that. And as a citizen of the United States, you have that privilege of a military force in America. So most of us here can relate to what it means to be a citizen of a powerful nation. So we can relate to the Philippian church to know what it is to be citizenship and to value that. But Paul here undercuts that entire thing when he says, let your manner of life or your citizenship be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Not Philippi, not Rome. He says, your priority is your heavenly citizenship. You are a citizen of the gospel of Christ. Now, unlike your citizenship for your, your country, the 
It's not because you were born in the right place at the right time or into the right family. And kids, I want you to listen up. You are not in the family of God because you were born into a Christian family. It's not how it works. You're an American citizen because you happen to be born on American soil. You are not a citizen of heaven because you were born into a family of Christians. Heavenly citizenship is obtained by faith in Jesus Christ. It is a free gift of God to everyone who puts their trust in Jesus Christ. It is earned and bought by Jesus Christ and then bestowed upon you as a free gift through faith. Well, faith in what? I often teach the baptism class. I love teaching the baptism class because you get to hear the testimonies and the stories. Oftentimes there's uh, many young people in the class. And I often ask this question, why are you going to heaven? Well, I put my faith in Jesus Christ. Well, what are you trusting him to do? You put your faith in him. That means you've transferred your trust from yourself to God. And you say, okay, what are you trusting him to do? trusting that he died for your sins, but what does that really mean? What that means, church, that when you say, I put my faith in Jesus Christ, that means that I trust that his death was sufficient to cover my sins. Obviously. What what does that mean if I'm wrong? What if Jesus, and don't, Lord, understand, okay, if, if Jesus is wrong, I have put my complete trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins. And if he is wrong, I stand condemned before a God of wrath. I'm in big trouble. I'm putting a huge amount of trust in him to do what he says he's going to do. That his death was sufficient. If I get there and I shows up and I say, okay, I put my faith in Jesus. And God says, well, Jesus wasn't enough. You needed to do X, Y, and Z. I am going to go unhoist. I am in big trouble. I have put my entire faith in Jesus Christ, that he has done what he said he was going to do. And here's the good news. I did it. I can trust him. That his death is sufficient. That there is nothing in me that can merit grace. He is completely and wholly trustworthy. And so I've transferred my faith from myself faith in him and there's more to it than that as we look at the world we see the futility that god has subjected it to this is in romans god has subjected the world to futility meaning things don't make sense that you have the wicked who are prosperous and wealthy and surviving and striving and just doing well and then you have the righteous who are poor and needy this doesn't make any sense in the economy of god what is going on God has subjected the world to futility. And you even see it in your own heart, right? That I desire to do good, I want to follow God, and yet I fail. And I struggle, and I still sin, and why is that? And God has subjected this world to futility. And what is it to put your faith in Christ? Is that, God, I know that you have a good plan. That Philippians 1.6 is true. It says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. That means when I sin, 
I still trust that God is going to forgive me for that, that he has forgiven me in his son, and that he's going to work all things together for my good, for those who love him, those who are called according to his purposes. I I have faith in that. That's what it means to have faith in Christ, that the chaos of the world, the ups and downs, the things that we don't get, our finite understanding of the world and everything that's going on, we say, I don't have to have the whole picture, God. I trust that you do and that you're going to work it out and everything is right in your law. That's what it means to have faith. And so like Roman citizenship, heavenly citizenship comes with privileges and responsibilities as well. When we have put our faith in Christ, we get the privilege of eternal life. We get sonship in God's family. We get a new living heart that's like God's heart. More on that later. But with it becomes comes obligations as well, right? Love for God. We love God. We must love other people. Christ calls us to suffer like he suffered for the advance of the gospel. We have to obey God in everything. We have to reject the world. We have to reject sin. Now, the obligations of heaven are not like the obligations of worldly citizenship. Worldly citizenship takes from the individual taxes withdraw from you they take from you heavenly citizenship is not that way the obligations of heavenly citizenship are life giving they are sweet to obey God is no problem it is not an obligation that is wearisome but it is a reward to obey the living God that we could walk in his ways therefore living a life worthy of our citizenship is to live a life that proves that the gospel is true in your life. And there's a lot of things. Paul will touch on a few of them throughout Philippians. I'll highlight a couple of them. Humility. It means that we're to count others as more significant than ourselves. That we're to look out for the interests of others over ourselves, even to our own detriment. There's a humility being a citizen that that we don't grumble and complain about what we don't have that what others have that we are to rejoice in trials with thanksgiving suffering is a promised part of the christian life it includes persecution for sure but it also includes losing out on the so-called benefits of the world we don't participate in those things because they're worldly and sinful represent the loving character of God to the hostile world of sin. Live a life worthy of the gospel. This is a command from Paul. Live a life of worthy of the gospel of Christ. That is an impossible command. Who has done that? What wretched failures we are. How could we possibly live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ that that God himself came, died for our sins, rose from the dead, and then offers us his righteousness for free? How could we ever be worthy of that? We are not worthy of that. How could anybody possibly live a life that's worthy of that? Well, Paul's glad you asked. 
because we look back at verse 27. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind. The spirit, what does he mean by spirit? In some of your Bibles, it may not be capitalized. Some of you may have capitalized. So there's a debate as to whether this is the Holy Spirit or like spirit as in a unified idea, like he just says here, that in the same mind. So which is it? Well, I think when we look at the context of Philippians, it's clear that it's the Holy Spirit. If you go back just a couple of verses to verse 19, it says, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. The Holy Spirit is helping in the things that God calls us to do. If we look forward to verse, chapter 2, verse 1, it says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, clearly this is the Holy Spirit. And so bracketing this kind of ambiguous, when we let Scripture interpret Scripture, bracketing this is the call that we are to be in the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit empowers us and enables us to do what God calls us to do. Now we have this impossible command from God to live a life worthy of the gospel and he says, do it in the Spirit and it's possible. You do it in the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit empowers us look over at Ephesians 4, just turn back a couple of pages, Ephesians 4, 4, it says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. The Holy Spirit enables us to live a life worthy of the gospel. When we are unified to him in Christ, then we are also unified to one another as we're unified to him. And we can encourage one another to live this life and to spur one another on to love and good deeds. And so we align ourselves with the Holy Spirit who has one purpose, one cause, one direction to glorify the Son and the Father. As we walk in the Holy Spirit, we seek to glorify the Son and the Father. Now, when we are divided, one or both of us not walking in the Spirit, not aligned with the Spirit. This is why our elder board works in unanimity. Can't do it. Unanimity. It's like, have you ever seen Finding Nemo? And it wants to say that word, and I, but I have struggled to ever say this word. But anyway, the point of the word is that we are all together, meaning that if eight of us say, yes, let's do this different thing, and one of us says, no, we should not, we stop. We say, okay, one or both of us is not in line with the Spirit. He's not taking us in different directions. He's not dividing our church and going two different ways. He's got one direction for us. So let's stop, seek after Him, and figure out what's going on here. Spirit empowers us to resolve conflict no matter how intense so that we're unified in Him. My wife and I uh, 
Ramsey, I have one. And uh, we're just, you know, going back and forth, getting nowhere, getting deeper entrenched into our position. And my wife, in her, you know, maturity and wisdom, suggested that we pray. So I respond to her, fine, we'll pray. And so I begrudgingly prayed and asked God, God, would you please unify us by your Holy Spirit? both in fact strong and brought us into unity and to peace because my wife and I are not enemies we're on the same team that's true in the scripture as well look at Ephesians 4 again as we consider how it is that we resolve conflicts we see that we are not in agreement and so one or both of us is not in line with the Holy Spirit and we struggle to decide how and who and what Ephesians 4 2 and 3 says with all humility and gentleness with patience bearing with one another in love eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace so when we disagree we examine ourselves in humility and seek to align ourselves with the Holy Spirit and the truth of the gospel the Holy Spirit the humility says, I might be wrong here. Matter of fact, I probably am wrong here. And when God reveals it to us, we repent of it. We repent of our selfish ambitions, our conceit, our pride. And we submit to heavenly wisdom. Heavenly wisdom, you know, as we read about it in James 3.17, heavenly wisdom doesn't seek your own ways. It's reasonable. gives us the ability to repent, forgive, show mercy, receive grace, great deal of grace, amazing grace, as Jesus said he would. Now there's a lot of personal application we can take out of this, but the context of Philippians 27, 127, is within the context of the church and how we are to operate as a church and the unity of the church. purpose, one direction. We were to act together as a church as we push forward the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're to have one mind working together as we have one thought to advance the gospel into enemy territory. Our ministries are not to be divided into little kingdoms that try to promote themselves as the most important thing think that your ministry is the most important ministry of the church you've lost your way we are all on the same team and that's not our team it's God's team and so we do what he wants us to do we have limited resources here at the church right we have only a certain amount of room in this building we only have a certain amount of money and people and attention spotlight can only be shown on one thing at a time that's the nature of a spotlight the priority of who goes on the bulletin when and where 
those limited resources. And if our ministries are fighting over those resources and saying, no, I want that. Mine is most important. My ministry is going to reach the most people, not yours. And we divide ourselves on this, trying to promote ourselves. We've lost our way. We've lost walking in the Holy Spirit who unifies us. And so instead of striving after trying to get the most for mine, we should be trying to promote and help the other ministries of the church. How can I make your ministry excel, exceed? How can we work together? How can we be unified in one direction to reach the lost? Any of a positive example of this? Wednesday nights are awesome. We get the uh, adventure club, the kids here, and they're learning the word of God. Um, and it's just, I mean, it's absolute chaos, controlled chaos. The whole building is uh, taken over by the kids, you know? And in that, we have the women's ministry meeting, and they can send their kids to go learn the Word of God. And then the women and the mothers are also taught the Word of God at the same time. And so we're sharing resources. We're working together. At the same time, there's a parenting class going on. The parents are able to drop the kids into the, uh, the Adventure Club program, and they learn. And then the parents learn how to become better parents. And it's all advancing the gospel together in a unified way that we are sharing and working together to promote each other glory of God. We have a negative example of this seen at almost every church I've been at. Um, when it comes down to the end of the year and your ministry's budget, you're under budget. You know, you haven't spent that extra 500 bucks. And you say, oh, hey, uh, what are we going to do with that money? Well, we don't need anything. Well, we got to spend it. Well, why not? Because if we spend it, it goes, if we don't spend it, it goes away. So let's buy something we don't need for our ministry. Instead of having the thought of, no, this is not my money. God's money. This money's for the ministry of the church. Hey, if I, if I was able to cut costs in my ministry and still accomplish everything God wanted me to accomplish, praise God, I'm going to give that money right back into the church and God will use it somewhere else instead of saying, mine, mine, mine. It's wrong if we do that. We don't build little kingdoms for ourselves. But Paul says in that's not enough to stand firm and have the same ideas. We are to carry the unified message of the gospel into the world. We are to strive for the spread of the gospel. Unfortunately, I will tell you what my points were as I went along and got through. Two was to be unified in the spirit of God. Three was to strive together for the spread of the gospel. He says we are to strive, verse 27, side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now the question then comes to my mind, what motivates us to action? You know, it's one thing to have the same ideas about things, and we believe the same thing about God, and we believe the same thing about ministry, that's all good. But what moves us from thinking about it to, to going out and doing something about it? What motivates our action? Why do we strive? The word is loaded, it's a loaded word, to strive. And I'll tell you, the reason that we strive is because God has given us His heart given us his heart. He's taken our hard, broken, callous heart, dead heart, and replaced it with his heart, a heart of flesh. So this means that we love the things he loves. We desire the things he desires. Now I've heard uh, many legalists argue that if, if you don't have rules and consequences for Christians, they will just sin all of the time, and that is an emphatic lie. 
If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, he has given you a new heart. And you necessarily desire the things of God. That you hate your sin now. You despise your sin. And you desire righteousness. You desire, desire to follow him. I don't have to motivate you to do the things of God. I just have to tell you what they are. And you go, yes, that's the thing of God. And I want to do that because I love God. It's just who you are now. I don't have to make you into this. It's who God has made you to be at salvation. And you learn to walk in that. Now, some of you are saying, yeah, but I still sin. Why do I still sin? If Romans 5 through, chapter 5 through 8, you don't have to turn there today. I'm going to give this to you for your own study. But it talks about being at war with our flesh because God has given us a new heart, but our our flesh, our body is still sinful. It still has old sinful desires. And so we now, as a believer, are at war with our flesh. The desires of our flesh are at war with our desire to follow God. Sometimes we lose the little battles, but God will win that war. Not only that, but we are in enemy territory. The world has desires and tries to pull us in. And have an, we have an enemy who's at work trying to pull us into sin. And so... There is a battle raging, and Paul talks about this. He says, oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me? That's God. Through sanctification, over time, we learn to control our flesh. Control will overcome the desires of the flesh, and we will walk in godliness, and this is a glorious thing. As we learn, as we mature in God, you realize the things of sin are death, and the things of God are life. point of our passage here is that as a believer you necessarily will love God and love the things he loves more and more as you mature so that when you hear clear commands of God you rejoice and strive to obey and love the things he loves and guess what God loves he loves saving the lost so true believers love to participate in that work even if it's hard word strive as he says side by side strive implies opposition now why would we have opposition to the greatest news in human history ever thought about that the good news the gospel is the greatest news in all of human history why would we have to strive to promote that here's why because it undercuts pride at every single level the gospel completely undercuts pride it says the gospel says that I can't that I'm wrong, that I messed up, that I'm completely incapable of doing anything to fix it, and that I need Jesus Christ to do it all. That's the gospel. That undercuts all of pride. Have you ever wondered why it's awkward to share the gospel? I get asked this question all the time when I'm talking about evangelism with people, and they say, okay, I, I want to share the gospel with my friend or my coworker, um, but I don't know how to get into that conversation. It's so awkward to go you know, we're talking about the weather or sports or whatever. How do I go from that to then talking about the things of God? Why is that so awkward? Here's why it's awkward. You're telling that person that they have to completely abandon everything they know and love. They have to reject everything that they have previously believed. They have to admit that they are a wrong sinner. 
that's an awkward message. It is horribly offensive. Satan hates that message. Unregenerate people hate that message. It is an offensive message to the crowd. Yes, it's going to be awkward to share it. There's no good way into sharing it. The doctor has a patient come to him and says, I got pain in my stomach. He says, okay, let me run some tests. He runs some tests. The patient comes back later. The doctor doesn't walk into that room saying, how can I soften this? How can I make this? This message that he's about to deliver to this person is horribly awkward, painful, and hurtful. He doesn't just say, well, you know what? I'm just not going to share it because I don't want them to have hurt feelings. I don't want them to feel bad about it. This is, I don't want to be the messenger of bad news. I'll just forget it. Hey, Hey, you're fine. Go ahead and go home. No, you have cancer. You're dying. You need to do emergency surgery. You need to start chemo right away. Whatever it may be. He is not going to sit there and say, oh, see if we can, you know, you might be sick. We're just going to give you some medicine. It'll be okay. No, this, this is the gospel message. You are sick. You are dying. You're on your way to hell. You're a terrible, rotten sinner. I was too. I found the good news of Jesus Christ. Here it is. Let me tell you about it. That is an awkward message. That is an offensive message to people. And that's the message we're told to give. Something that assures me that the faith of the gospel is legitimate. And that's people's reaction. When we share the gospel, the real gospel, not things about the gospel, not things about God, not peripheral things, but when you go and you share the message that you are a sinner in need of a Savior, when you share that message, people get either angry or they repent. That means that it's true. And that it has touched their heart and either infuriated them in rage because they're an enemy of God or God is at work softening their heart, bringing them to repentance. And when you hold firm to the truth of the gospel and tell them that they're wrong, they get angry. There's an emotional response or a repentant response. Now, Lord willing, Nathan's going to dive into this a little bit more next week. The purpose of our verse today, really, is that we are to hold fast to this truth. That when opposition comes, we stick to the truth. We stick to the gospel. We stand firm in it, and we strive to work forward, to push that message forward. The last point I want to make about striving is that it implies hard work. Not that we're working for salvation or working for God's you know, blessing in our life. No, we are working because we are in line with God. We have the heart of God. We want to see people saved. And it's hard work to do it. In America, I think we largely have fallen asleep in the luxury of living in the U.S., the comfort and the ease that we have here has caused us to fall asleep. We've stopped working hard to expand the kingdom of God. Think about Alexander the Great, conquered the known world. He didn't do it by sleeping in and being lazy. He got up in the morning and he worked. He had... wake up the world around us is on their way to hell we need to go out and join God in his work of saving souls we get to be a part of that what a privilege and we will face opposition we will lose friends we will lose family members we will be rejected and made fun of 
by our co-workers. Matter of fact, Jesus promises that will happen. So, let's go out and fulfill the promise of Jesus. Share the gospel. Have the awkward conversation. And advance the kingdom of God. Let's pray. God, we, uh, we thank you for your son. Thank you for letting us be a part of the work saving those we love, our family, our friends, our co-workers, whoever you want to bring into our lives, Lord, I ask that you would um, encourage us uh, in the Holy Spirit as we would walk by faith, trusting your promises, sharing the gospel, having those awkward conversations, Lord, that we would trust that you are working all things out together for good. We, we love your son you and you love the things that you love and you love the lost that's why you sent your son into this world lord make it possible for us to do that help us to stand together as a church to be unified in one vision that we wouldn't fight and bicker which we'll talk about later in philippians lord that uh, we would stand together unified in the, the truth of the gospel and uh, that uh, many would come to faith and that we would rejoice in that we pray this in jesus name amen